It's also one of the big reasons why we have such great political divides in the U.S. is because we're so isolated uh, in our daily lives. And so I think that the more urbanism, the more public transit that we have, the more people riding on Amtrak and mingling with fellow passengers, the better our democracy will actually become. From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hey everyone, it's Jim Hodap. Welcome back to Livable City. Have you ever experienced something so transformational that it caused you to make a major shift in how you do something? For me, that was moving downtown Indianapolis after growing up in the suburbs of Milwaukee, plus many years in Midtown Indy. It changed how I felt about my city, and even how I went about making my friends. My guest today also had a very large shift that completely changed the direction of his own life. Mike Christensen's life was forever altered by an experience with the humble train on a fun trip to Europe. So much so that later he sold his car and has thrived without owning one for many years now. In this episode, you'll hear Mike talk about how this radically changed how he experienced his home area in Utah, and then inspired his direction while in university, and ultimately how he's currently making a living. I'm excited to introduce Mike to you, and hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey Mike, welcome to Livable City. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so glad you could make it today. Um, So, uh, I'm going to start off with the first question here. Um, How did you become interested in cities, towns, transportation, and caring about really the finer details about them? I think it uh, stems from having lived in uh, multiple different types of urban environments. I uh, lived in California when I was a little kid in the Bay Area, and it was very much the typical California suburban sprawl. And then uh, when I was 10, my parents divorced and my dad and I moved to Idaho and I was suddenly in a town of 2000 people. That's uh, a big so it was a little bit different, but we were like right in the middle of town and it was strangely more urban than the suburban town that I had previously lived in. Uh, and it was very walkable. And so that was an interesting uh, juxtaposition. And then I, when I was, let's see, it was the summer between my junior and senior years of high school, I uh, went to Germany as an exchange student for a month and was suddenly exposed to uh the awesome urbanism over there and great uh, public transit options. And then two years later, I served a mission uh, for the LDS church uh, in Germany. And so I was back over there living for almost two years. And uh, pretty much all of our getting around was walking, biking, uh, buses, trains, and that that experience of being immersed in it really got me thinking about uh, 
the fact that in the United States we 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 have this this cultural uh, legend of the American dream, and it involves living in the suburbs in a house with a two car garage, and you drive everywhere. And so, living in Germany really challenged that whole idea because I was seeing lots of people, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, going maybe years at a time without even getting in a car and seeing that their quality of life was not diminished by the least bit and probably in a lot of ways, even higher quality of life. So that really got me to start wondering why, why aren't we having more of this in the U S so that's, that's how I got into it. That's awesome. So it was really like a transformative experience for you to yes. get outside of what you're used to in the United States and experience exactly. other ways of getting around. How did how did that um, inform how you came back, when you came back to the United States? What what changed from there? Well, eventually, well, I uh, did a uh, undergraduate degree in geography with an emphasis on, on GIS and but I was really always wanting to get more into the planning aspect of it. And eventually my path led me to uh, going to grad school at the University of Utah and uh, working on a master of city and metropolitan planning. And I knew that, that I was wanting to go in the direction of becoming a transportation planner. And as I looked at my own transit system here in Salt Lake City, I could see little mistakes that were being made because the people that were planning uh, those transit systems were getting in their car in the morning and driving to work and sitting in their cubicle all day and then driving home. And they were never actually using the systems that they were planning. And uh, so I could see that if I wanted to be the type of transportation planner that would make a positive impact on uh, transit systems that I wanted to really immerse myself in it and be living the lifestyle that I was trying to provide for other people. So uh, one of the great things about uh, the university of Utah is that they have, uh, a really good way of incentivizing people or students and faculty alike to take public transit uh, because they include the transit pass as part of your uh, student fees. So it's already paid for. Uh, but yet, if you want a parking pass, you've got to pay, uh, I don't even know what it is, but it's, you know, several hundred dollars per semester. So uh, that made it very easy for me to want to take transit to campus. And uh, so in my entire time as a student, I only drove uh, to campus once, and that was on a Saturday when we were finishing up a group project, and I knew that I was going to be there until like 2 or 3 in the morning. And uh, the, the weird thing is that I still felt really guilty about driving to campus. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, but it it was not, yeah, it was definitely not normal. That was not the normal way of getting to and from campus for me. And uh, that whole experience of doing that for several years 
uh, I got to the point where I was going six to eight weeks at a time between using my car and I was experiencing a lot of interesting things with it. Like in the winter when it gets cold, the battery would discharge and then I'd go to use my car and I turn the key and it would just be click, click. And all of a sudden I realized that the whole argument of having, uh, this car for an emergency just wasn't working. And, uh, I quickly also realized that I was paying more in maintenance every year than what the car was actually worth. And so, That's uh, a bad feeling. <laughs> yeah, it was like, cause I, before I got rid of it, I had, I had taken it in to get serviced. Uh, well, and I was only taking it in for oil changes like once a year because I was only driving it. Uh, I think the last year that I had it, I only drove it 1,300 miles. Wow, that's amazing. And uh, I took it into the dealership and had it serviced. And, you know, they always write up a quote of, of recommended maintenance things. And it was like $2,000 worth of stuff that they were recommending. And it was all stuff that, like, made sense. Uh and I did the blue book value of it and it wasn't worth $2,000 anymore. So, uh, it became clear at that point that it was dead weight. <laughs> and <laughs> so it was weird because the, the day that I finally made the decision to get rid of it, I was it, like, I wanted to rush to the dealership to sell it, to get the cash so that I wouldn't, it wouldn't depreciate anymore in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that was about two and a half years ago. So I've been living almost car free. I mean, I say almost because occasionally I do rent a car so I can go somewhere where, where transit's not an option. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my, my, my experience has, has been that, uh, I'm not just an expert because of my education on, uh, uh, active transportation and transit, but I'm actually living the lifestyle. And, uh, I also have been a huge user of Salt Lake city's bike share program. Uh, that's all awesome. in fact, in the first five years of operation of all the annual members, I made, the most trips and rode the most miles. Wow. And, uh, it's, it's just amazingly, uh, convenient getting around downtown Salt Lake city using, uh, our green bike bike share system. Yeah, I bet. I, uh, I use the one here in Chicago, Divi quite a bit. Too. Oh yes. And, uh, same thing. It's like so many times that's the most convenient way to get around more than anything. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been to Chicago several times uh, because as a, as a frequent uh, Amtrak rider, that is the transfer point if you're going from the west to the east or vice versa. Indeed. So I've had several layovers in Chicago. And the hilarious thing is that I still have yet to ride the L. And the reason is because when I'm downtown at, at Union Station uh, – you know, on my layover wanting to, to kill time, it's so much easier just to grab uh, one of the bike share bikes and just ride around. It really is. 
That's ironic for a train guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that that leads me into my next question for you. Great segue. Um, so you you're in the in the business in quotes of advocating for better rail in the great state of Utah. Um, and I'm curious, uh, how'd you get started in that and what are you hoping to achieve? Let's see. One of the big reasons why I'm in it is as part of my master's program, I had to complete a capstone professional project or, well, usually in other programs that'd be called a thesis, but, our department isn't quite as, as uh, stringent on it, so they just call it a professional project. And I had been wanting to improve or find ways of improving uh, our, our rail system here in Utah, which we have a, a great uh, transit system uh, within the Salt Lake City metropolitan region. Yeah, I but. It is awesome. We don't have anything that extends beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have we do have one Amtrak route, the California Zephyr, that crosses through Utah once a day in each direction, going between Chicago and the Bay Area. Uh, but that's not really adequate to to meet the needs of, of the state of Utah. And so, for my professional project, I decided, well, I'm going to see what we can do as far as providing passenger rail in Utah using uh, existing Union Pacific freight tracks that we have here in the state and just see what that would look like. And uh, one of the really interesting things is that as I looked around the country for similar uh, examples of rail systems uh, or Basically, in other words, other states that are hiring Amtrak to provide service, uh, passenger rail service for them. Uh, Illinois actually became the best uh, example for Utah. And the reason is that, uh, well, when we look at the Midwest, we think of the states as being smaller, but Illinois actually has a greater north-south extent than the state of Utah. Yeah. Uh, also spoken like a Westerner. I don't think. Yeah, I'm exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and when you, when you look at the, the Amtrak routes that, that emanate from Chicago that are, you know, up to 500 miles or so in length, you see a lot of what I call no-brainer routes, like Chicago to Milwaukee, Chicago to St. Louis, uh, Chicago to Detroit, uh, and, well, until recently, Chicago to Indianapolis. But that's a whole other story that we don't want to get into right now. <laughs> yeah, rest in peace. Yeah, but uh, and, and those are no-brainer routes because they're connecting big metropolitan areas. The interesting thing is that the state of Illinois also sponsors two routes, uh, Chicago to Quincy and Chicago to Carbondale, that are going to smaller metropolitan areas uh, where there are roughly 100,000 to 150,000 people within 25 miles of the station. And that demographic is very similar to the cities in Utah that we want to use as endpoints for this rail system. 
And so when I discovered that Illinois was running routes that had very similar demographic profiles, I realized that this uh, would actually yield ridership in Utah. And so knowing that and having that be the big discovery of, of my uh, academic research, I, it, it made me really want to see if I could actually take this from being just an academic exercise into being the real world. And, uh, and so I decided to form a nonprofit to, to advocate for this, this vision. And uh, I did that a little over a year ago. And I have, in the meantime, had the opportunity to travel around Utah and meet with uh, mayors and city councils and local residents to talk to them about their needs. And I have gotten a hugely positive response from, from all the local communities. Uh, That's amazing. They, they yeah. are, uh, well, one, one place that's a really good example is the town of Price, which uh, lies along the route of the California Zephyr, uh, but there's not actually a station there, even though the town is, has a population of about 10,000. But they are kind of in the heart of coal country in Utah, and the coal industry has... Uh, really been on the decline lately and the people there are really looking for other economic opportunities and so having reliable uh, public transit would be a huge economic uh, boon to them and uh, one of the difficulties in Utah is that we are a state where our, our state department of transportation does not really do much of anything when it comes to public transit. And so all of the public transit in the state is done in geographically constrained districts. And uh, there is very little connection or collaboration uh, between districts uh, around the state. And actually until, I don't know, it was probably about 10 years ago, uh, there was a law on the books in the state that actually made it illegal for public uh, transit districts to have any services that went outside of their boundaries. So that means that they literally could not have cross-connecting services. That's so, and, that's so weird to yeah, write laws and like. in in looking at what other states are doing, even right next door in Colorado, uh, their state DOT has actually launched a program uh, of bus service throughout the state. And uh, so they, they have basically overlaid their transit districts with a statewide bus system. And so uh, that's something that I would love to see in Utah and would love to help uh, affect that change in thinking. Uh, in our state DOT. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you got started with your Utah Passenger Rail Association, how did you how did you begin advocating for your message? How did you get it out there? How did you get started? Well, 
one of the one of the big expenses was just uh, getting a website, a professional looking website, up and going, so that when I met with people and handed out uh, my business card, they would actually have something to go look at. But uh, that's just really basic uh, dissemination of information. Uh, so far, the most effective stuff that I've done has just been traveling the state and meeting with people. And uh, how how have you arranged those meetings? Have you just been reaching out on LinkedIn or email or cold calling? Any uh, usually, I just go to the website for whichever town I am planning on traveling to, and uh, I'll look at uh, well if it's a it's a bigger town. I will usually try to talk to their planners or their economic development people. But if it's a small town like uh, Green River, Utah, that has a population of less than ten thousand, I just found out the email address for the mayor and emailed them directly. That's um, amazing, and you've, you've gotten the, a really good response from everybody. Like, they're yeah, willing to meet and listen to your story. And uh, it also helps that uh, I've, I've done a lot of networking with people. And so, uh, for example, uh, in the town of Moab, which is one of our uh, tourist meccas, because it's, it's located uh, right next to Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park. And it lies right on the Colorado River. And it also has uh, amazing mountain biking trails. Well, uh, Moab is, is the county seat and really the only town in the in, uh, Grand County. And it turns out that one of my former classmates is the economic development director for Grand County. So that made it very easy for me to shoot him an email and say, hey, I want to come out and talk about this. That's awesome. And, uh, so it, it's still, there, there's lots to be said of, networking and being in contact with people and uh, having a presence at uh, local conferences. Since I'm a planner, I'm involved in the uh, Utah chapter of the American Planning Association. And uh, I'm also on the board of uh, the Utah chapter of the Congress for the New Urbanism. And uh, I've also gotten involved in the Utah League of Cities and Towns, which uh, brings all of the, the heads of all these towns together. And, uh, yeah, so the, 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 what I would, the big advice that I would give to all of the advocates out there is to just be out among people as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you As you got you know, you started meeting with some folks out there, uh, you know, they were receptive. They were, they were starting to listen to you. You're telling your story. What, what happened from there? Like, um, how did you find your next people to talk to and, and what, what's happened from this networking? <laughs> well, it's still very much an ongoing process. And, uh, the, well, I have to, to, to give a caveat that funding has been one of the, the biggest struggles in all of this. And uh, so I'm that. still looking to get uh, adequate funding. Uh, but and you guys I, I have gotten an overwhelmingly positive response from everybody. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
it's still been the hardest to get people within our state DOT to listen. And I've gotten a lot of interest from other departments within state government, like uh, tourism and economic development and workforce services. Uh, they really would like to see more opportunities because uh, they're trying to connect people to jobs, and that's been a struggle in the rural areas. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's still really difficult to, to get people uh within our DOT to actually pay attention to this. We okay. have gotten a little bit of traction. Uh, my efforts in working with uh, Moab have shown a lot of fruit. Uh, they, they have already, even before I started meeting with people in Moab, they had already formed a committee to look at a, uh, a shuttle bus system that will connect the town with Arches National Park. Uh, they There are weekends during the summer where it gets so busy with people trying to drive into the park that the Utah Highway Patrol actually has the park close the entrance because there are so many people lined up on the highway. Oh, wow. So, and, so there's yeah, a there's a real problem, right? That it's a real problem, and they're they're in this dilemma of we want to continue to grow our tourism industry, but cars are literally crushing it. And so they realize that they can have more people come; they just can't handle more people in cars. And uh, Moab also lies on the end of a rail spur, so. Uh, you, you could get a passenger train running out there fairly easily. And uh, the this committee in Moab, with my encouragement, made enough noise with our state DOT to get them to allocate, uh, I think it was $65,000 to fund a high-level feasibility study of passenger rail between Salt Lake City and Moab. And uh, that actually should be wrapping up here in a couple months. Uh, so we're hoping that that will show positive results. And uh, I was a little disappointed that we couldn't get this, the uh, our DOT to expand the scope of this study to include the whole state rather than just one segment of, of passenger rail in the state. Uh, but at least it's something. And one of, one of the struggles with this study is that there's not a whole lot of comparable uh, tourism systems here in the U.S. The Probably the closest thing is the Grand Canyon Railway, which runs from uh, Williams, Arizona, which is on uh, Interstate 40 and also along one of the the Amtrak routes, the, the Southwest chief that goes between Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, so it runs from, from there in Williams, Arizona, north to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And, uh, but it's very purely tourist-type railroad. Uh, another example is the Amtrak ski train that goes between 
uh, Denver and uh, Winter Park Ski Resort and actually pretty much sells out every run that they do in the winter. So there, there are some examples, but it's still uh, a little difficult to know, to be able to, to do a study that, that really accurately predicts what the ridership would be. Yeah, absolutely. And it also depends heavily on how good the shuttle system in Moab will be uh, in terms of being able to get people from the train station to the town and to Arches National Park. When you um, when you run into you know roadblocks like, for example, the uh, state DOT of Utah, um, what what are you thinking about? How do you approach that? How do you uh, how do you get past that? It uh, it could be easy to get discouraged. Yeah, um, absolutely, because I've I ironically a few years ago when I was still a student, I was looking to get research funding from, from our state DOT. And I remember being at a, an informational meeting that they hosted about what uh, grants they were giving out. And I'm sitting next to this, this uh, planner at UDOT that says, uh, well, we, we, we know we're in a state that has, a lot of tourism and that we have lots of people that fly into the Salt Lake city international airport and rent a car and drive halfway across the state to get to whatever park or whatever activity they're doing. And we'd like to see ideas for how we could, you know, move tourists around more effectively in our state. And I heard that and I'm like, Wow, I'm 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 right up your alley because I've got an idea, and so I talked to him afterwards, and he was like, "Well, you know, this is an auto-oriented state, and we don't know how to do trains, and it would never work." So, Mike, um, how does your advocacy work uh, around passenger rail for the state of Utah? How does it connect to livable places and making them more livable? Well, I think it's it's helpful to kind of look at this through the strong towns lens of, uh, you know, uh, productive public transit is, is productive because it's connecting productive places. And uh, so I think that by uh, establishing and, and increasing uh, public transit service and especially going out into more rural areas. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of these small towns have really, uh, walkable, small, but, but very urban downtowns. And so by, by providing the public transit in there, whether, whether it's bus service or whether it's Amtrak trains or whatever, it is really connecting that urbanism to the greater urbanism of the metropolitan region. And so it's kind of a, a, uh, a secret plot to spread urbanism throughout the state. <laughs> <laughs> so I bet when you go to some of these small towns, um, you're probably not saying that straight like that, right? Because um, you probably get a lot of pushback. But, but your point still stands, right, that all these places that have, even if it's tiny, walkable centers, that's fantastic for... Um, public transit, right? 
Right, exactly. And well, it's really interesting though because there are some there. The, well, in particular, there's one really good example of uh, of urbanism in a small little town. Uh, one of the stops in Utah of the California Zephyr is a little town called Helper, which it it got its name because it's right before uh, climbing up over a mountain pass. And so in the old days, they would, the, the railroads would always uh, put extra engines that they called helper engines onto the trains. And so that's how the town got its name. And it's a little town of about 2,000 people, but it has this beautiful little walkable downtown that's lined by storefronts. And it's like a half block from the Amtrak station. So you can literally fall out of the train and stumble on the main street. And, uh, the town has, uh, really become home to a lot of artists, uh, in recent years. And so the main street is lined with all of these little art galleries. And the reason is that the, the town was pretty much dead and so artists were able to come in and for small amounts of relatively small amounts of money, buy up these old stores and uh, convert the front into the gallery and also have their workspace in there. And in a lot of cases, even put an apartment in there for them to live. So it's this great example of live work uh, spaces in a small town. And uh, that sounds if, awesome. If they could get more uh, more passenger rail connectivity, that would greatly uh, increase their their ability to be a tourist destination. Yeah, absolutely. And and how does it affect the locals there? Um, do you know if they have lower rates of car ownership, car usage? Um, do do the locals use the train? They they do a little bit. The the difficulty is that using it for travel within Utah is difficult because the, the schedule, uh, basically the train comes through Salt Lake city in the middle of the night. So that makes it a little less than ideal. Uh, plus, uh, there can be a lot of potential delays with Amtrak long distance trains. So sometimes the train can be delayed several hours, which, which makes it difficult but that's also why we want to increase passenger rail service in Utah because if we can have local originating trains, then we can have schedules that are more conducive to, to uh, times that people actually want to travel. And also the, the delays would typically be much uh, smaller. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that we'd like to get in there. But, uh, the and in some of these towns, uh, you you could get from from your home to work to the grocery store just by walking or riding a bike. So there is a lot of potential if you can add in the longer distance component too. That would make it possible for people to live car free lifestyles or at least uh, car light lifestyles where. They, uh, there, there are awesome, you know, recreation opportunities there that reasonably can only be accessed by car. So, uh, 
you know, you'd probably still own a car, but you could get by with, with living your typical day-to-day life without having to use it. Yeah, that makes sense. And what do you think about transportation choices like the train? Really, How, how do they really help make a, a place better um, than, than maybe one that's just solely reliant on cars alone? I think, well... Uh, when your when your options are limited, uh, it's like especially if you're young or old and can't drive on either end of the our, our life cycles, uh, that really limits uh, your ability to be able to transport yourself. So that's one big aspect of it, uh, and also the services that are available in small towns have been shrinking over time. Uh, so if you really want to go shopping and have a wide variety available, or if you're sick and you need specialist medical care, those are all things that aren't available anymore in small towns. And so it's great to have, uh, you know, transportation options for that. Uh, but one of the real big ones is just uh, increasing access to jobs. And I think having the, uh, you know, increased passenger rail service really works uh, for both making the towns more attractive for potential employers to locate in and also for people being able to commute to bigger cities. Uh, that makes sense. They can still drive, but when you're behind the wheel, you really can't do a whole lot besides listen to music or listen to podcasts or books on tape or whatever. And having the train where you can really sit back and, you know, pull out your laptop and actually get work done, uh, especially if they've got, you know, uh, good internet along the way for you or even just sit back and take a nap while you're on the train. So uh, yeah. I think just so having higher. that option is, is huge. Yeah. So it gives you like um, in many respects, uh, a different and many, t- many instances, a higher quality of life when you're going from point A to point B over just, just a car. Right. Exactly. And uh, yeah, because even, if you, if you live in one of these small towns and you were commuting to a job in Salt Lake City and, you know, it's a three-hour trip by train, uh, you know, you can get a whole lot more stuff done sitting on the train than you could driving. Yeah, so and you can take your work with you. Um, exactly. It, which, you know, we're increasingly in a culture, in a, in a world where, lot of people are working remotely anyway so um you know why not on a train too right and and when we when you really look at the people out there who are mega commuters who really do long daily commutes uh that those those if, if they're driving there's kind of a maximum limit that you can take but if you're going by train, that allows those commutes to be a lot longer because you can do so much more with your time. Yeah, 100%. Um, I also want to make the point, so I went to Italy for the first time last last fall, almost a year ago, 
I went to the uh, amazing place of Cinque Terre and that you can really, you know, only for all practical purposes, get there by train. And one of the cool things about when you get there is there's these five towns, right? Um, there's almost no cars there. And wow. I imagined, I imagined if a highway was the main way to get in there, um, those five quaint little towns would look a whole lot different. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's left that's, a, a big impression on me. Yeah, then I, I think of applying that in Utah, and uh, well, one of one of the big things that we're really trying to, to push for better public transit is to our ski resorts, uh, because it's a large volume of, of people moving into a canyon, so they're all having to take the same route to get there, and so it's really ideal for uh, for transit. Uh, but it's, it's difficult funding wise to get to do that. Plus you've got a huge volume of people that all want to do the trip at the same time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, uh, uh, yeah. So think, that's, uh, I'll go ahead. What do you think? Um, uh, you know, this, um, the Utah department of transportation, what do you think hinders them and other leadership. I'm sure there's some politicians that are not very train friendly or um, wanting to change these places, you know, start and end destinations around the train. What do you think uh, uh, keeps them scared or, or unwilling to uh, listen to your advocacy story? I think that it's a combination of a couple of things. Uh, one is kind of just the the ignorance of not really understanding how public transit can work. If well, especially if you get the uh, the land use component coordinated properly with it, uh, a lot of politicians kind of have uh, poor views of public transit because they see public transit trying to be. Uh, implemented into sprawling suburban environments that uh, have really low density and really poor street connectivity. And that makes it extremely difficult for transit to be effective. And so they blame transit for the failing when it's really failure of the land use. And uh, so that's, that's one aspect of it. And another one is that, we have we're, we're we're a state where uh, highways are king, and we have a large highway building lobby that uh, has been very effective in leveraging public money year after year to build more highways. So that that makes it a highly political uh, thing, and. It's uh, difficult to fight against the, the money that they're able to wield. That makes sense. So really, you know, what I hear you saying, there's a lot of momentum behind um, our existing exactly. land use, which kind of centers around, well, not kind of, absolutely centers around the automobile and everybody having the chance to own one if they choose to and can afford it. Right. So envisioning, um, the type of land use that would work um, better with a train or with a bus or, or just any kind of public transit is very different than what we have today, right? Right. And uh, 
I can see how that is also frightening for the people that are involved in auto-oriented in industry. And, uh, yeah, that uh, they their whole business is built on the assumption that everybody's going to be driving everywhere. And yeah, that's indeed. how they make their money. And, uh, yeah, right. so they push for highways. And, of course, they push for parking everywhere because if people can't park their cars, then this whole way of thinking quickly breaks down. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, even on the bicycle, right, as I think about um, using my bike to get places in Chicago, if I know, um, because I've been there previously to a place that there's no bike parking, I'll be hesitant to take my own bike. Now, thankfully, there's the bike share, which typically has a station around where I want to go. So I I tend to use that more than my own. But even parking of a bike... um, kind of helps determine what uh, and how many people will use a bike. Exactly. Same, thing with a car, same thing with a train, same thing with a bus. You have to get the details of the place right. Exactly. To, yes. To like, to foster more use of um, and more options of transportation to go from great place to great place. Yeah. In fact, in thinking about, uh, if, if I can actually get my, my vision for passenger rail in Utah going, uh, I can see like my, my greatest role in implementing it is making sure that the stations actually uh, are in the right context for their surroundings and, you know, fit into that important piece of, of making the connection between the train and the town. Yeah, that that's huge. Absolutely. Um, so what would you say to our, our listeners, you know, if, if they have something about where they live or about transportation, where they live or the land use or whatever um, they're observing about their city that just kind of drives them crazy, how, how would you advise them to get started to making change happen around that? Well, I think the first thing is to look and see if there's any allies, because a lot of times there's already... Uh, people that have realized the same things, and a lot of times they've even already organized it. In fact, uh, my I'm, I'm like very active on Twitter, and I have a couple friends that uh, have started out just being my followers on Twitter that have gotten involved in urbanism just from reading my tweets. And oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's actually really flattering to hear that, but, right. uh, I've never heard that. That's awesome. Uh, and then well, one friend in particular said that he knew that as he, as he looked at his neighborhood, that there were things that he knew was wrong about it, but he didn't really have the vocabulary to be able to articulate it. And then he ran into me on Twitter and then learned all about this whole field of urbanism and that there's even an organization called the Congress for the new urbanism that is pushing this. And there's other organizations like strong towns that are also a big part of it. Uh, And I feel like there are a lot of people out there that are living suburban lifestyles and driving everywhere and they know that something's not right. And 
I well, in, in my master's program, we focused a lot on urban ecology and on the actual uh, biology and the interactions between us as as organisms and our environments, and realizing that this whole uh, auto-oriented lifestyle that, um, let's see, it deprives us of walking so we don't get as much physical exercise and it isolates us from other people. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that whole thing is actually detrimental to us as a species. And I think people are waking up to that and, uh, realizing that, that there's something broken with, with our system. Yeah. So it sounds like, um, you know, you'd recommend that they, they take that energy as they're waking up, as they, they, re- they, they feel in their gut, something's wrong. Right. Or, right. or they, they actually have something in mind that they want to change and use that energy, get started. It's a little bit of what, um, you shared earlier in in our conversation here about make some connections, get out to know some people, um, meet with some people, um, start telling the story, see if there's synergies, that kind of thing. Is that exactly that yes? So and uh, just get to know, know some people. <laughs> exactly. The more and more people you can get involved, the better. And and at, at minimum, you can you know commiserate with them and <laughs> have somebody to actually. <laughs> That, that understands you that you can make your complaints to <laughs> very therapeutic <laughs> exactly yes yep but you know i know uh for myself it was therapeutic you know when i started feeling that way about indianapolis when i lived there but i wanted to do more and so meeting those folks is also reassuring that there are other people that feel similarly to you not exactly, exactly. the same right some people come in with nuance but you can learn from each other. You can feel each other um, energy-wise, and uh, other folks also bring connections with them too. Yes, and uh, it. I think it's it's also one of the big reasons why we have such great political divides in the U.S. is because we're so isolated uh, in our daily lives. And so I think that the more urbanism, the more public transit that we have, the more people riding on Amtrak and mingling with fellow passengers, the better our democracy will actually become. Oh, 100%. I cannot agree more. Um, Yeah. yeah. um, So, Mike, uh, as we come to a close on this conversation, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? Let's see. Uh, yeah, I thought of this earlier, and I thought that it would be interesting to talk about how we actually met, because we were both uh, in Tulsa attending the Strong Towns event that was there back in April of 2017, if I remember right. Yep, that's right. And we were, I forget what the session was, but... Uh, part of the session involved uh, pairing off with people in the group and talking to them. And we happened to to pair each other together. And I remember I started talking about uh, the fact that I had recently gotten rid of my car. And I remember you listening and your eyes got big and you, you 
basically related that, that you were in the process of wanting to do the same thing. And, uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that's always, uh, that's, that's huge to, to be able to travel around the country and run into people that are experiencing the same things. And, uh, uh, also a big, that's a big shout out to strong towns and all the amazing work that they do. Oh yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. That was like the first meetup ever, large-scale meetup of Strong Towns uh, yes. members together. And it was amazing. And I was quite impressed that you had done that and very jealous. Because uh, <laughs> even though I, I work from home in Indy and I was very car light, I couldn't imagine um, completely getting rid of it. But amazingly now in Chicago, I have gotten rid of it and I've been car-free since March. Nice. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, Mike, where can everyone find you and your amazing work online? Let's see. There's a couple places. Uh, I, well, I have a blog that I have not been very active in keeping up on recently, but I, I do have some interesting articles uh, that I've done in the past. And, and I do detail uh, the process of getting rid of my car on the blog, but you can find me uh, at countingpanographs.org. And uh, professionally, you can find me at utahrpa.org. That's the website for the Utah Rail Passengers Association. And I also have to give a shout out for the National uh, Rail Passengers Association, which is doing huge uh, passenger rail advocacy work on a national level. And you can find them at railpassengers.org. And uh, if you want to connect with me, I am on uh, Twitter at MRC underscore SLC. And I spend way too much time every day on Twitter, but uh, that's how I connect with my people <laughs> <laughs> i can attest to that mike is very very fast on the like button yeah <laughs> <laughs> well mike uh thank you so much for joining us this has been an absolute pleasure uh we should do it again soon sounds good so clearly mike loves trains i mean it's pretty obvious from that fantastic conversation what are you thinking or feeling about after that conversation did that stir up anything for you about your own place that you live in? I'm wondering if you can relate to Mike's desire to connect better to people and how he chooses to get to places where he lives. Here's a really important thing to do as you get around this week. I want you to notice how you think. How do you feel about it as you go around your place? If it's in a car, how do other drivers make you feel? Do you connect with them? When you walk to a place, do you feel differently than when you drive? How about other forms like the bike or the train or whatever? Do you notice different things about where you live? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Please send them to me using Twitter or Instagram and make sure to tag at livable underscore city and use the hashtag livable city. And as a motivator for sharing your thoughts with me, the first person to do so will get the chance to be a guest on livable city and we'll talk about where you live. As always, I love bringing you thoughts about where we all live every guest that I'm fortunate enough to speak with. If you love what Livable City is doing, please consider supporting us through a generous donation. 
You can find the info to become a member with some added perks at livablecity.co forward slash membership. Thanks everybody. And until the next episode, remember to learn, listen, and lead where you live. Thank you.